0: Hi there, and welcome back. After doing a three-month media blitz, promoting my book, Getting My Bounce Back, I'm thrilled to turn my attention again to my brain on endorphins, my conversations with smart and interesting people about all things wellness, including running, yoga, nutrition, and mindfulness. I'm Carol Walker, a writer living in Washington, D.C. Today, my guest is Rabbi Jesse Pakin, a rabbinic fellow at the Sixth and I Synagogue in downtown Washington, D.C. A native of Toronto, Rabbi Jesse is here through a two-year fellowship of the Jewish Emergent Network, which brings together seven innovative Jewish communities from across the U.S. in a spirit of collaboration. I first met Rabbi Jesse at the Good Soul Services during this year's High Holidays. I'm sure I'm not the only Jewish geek who attends services to hear the Rabbi's sermon, and the one Rabbi Jesse gave about the story of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry did not disappoint. The sermon captured my attention right away and ultimately inspired me to spend the next several episodes exploring the idea that everyone has the ability to change. I stopped by Rabbi Jesse's office in Chinatown at lunchtime a few days ago, where I had the opportunity to ask him about his background and about that sermon. So here you go my conversation with Rabbi Jesse.
1: So, my name is Jesse Bacon. Um, I'm a rabbi here at Sixth and I, uh, Sixth and I Historic Synagogue, which is um, uh, I don't know of any other Jewish community like this anywhere in the world. We're a hybrid between um, an arts and culture center, um, priding ourselves on kind of public-facing arts, cultures, and ideas. Uh, the British chef Yotam Otolenghi was here last night. Um, to a packed house speaking off of our bima in front of the Holy Ark, which was amazing. Um, So that's one side of what we do. And then the other side is uh, re-envisioning what a synagogue can look like in the 21st century with a particular attention to people in their 20s and their 30s. Um, And for a city like DC where people are very transient, people come and go, they don't necessarily have an established Jewish community that they're already a part of, and they don't know how long that they're gonna be here. the idea is that you can come into Sixth and I. No questions asked about who you are, where you're from, what your religious upbringing was. Are you Jewish? Are you Jewish adjacent? Um, and really, kind of low, low barrier entry. So there's no dues. Um, people come to our programs either um, just one off. They come in and they check it out and see if they like it, or or they take part in some of our ongoing classes. Um, and um, part of my job here is made possible through something called the Jewish Emergent Network, which is a, um, a network of seven communities across the United States who are similarly rethinking what it means to be a Jewish community. Are we, do we use the word synagogue? Do we look for a different word to describe what we're doing and what, um, they're all unique. They're all very local and they're adapted to the, to the local communities that they're in in places like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco. Um, But what we all have in common is um, not taking for granted that people are just going to join a synagogue and pay dues and stay there for the rest of their life, but really um, want to think about um, how do we respond to the needs of people where we are and what's our bigger vision as to what Jewish life can look like in the 21st century.
0: Did you have a congregation prior to coming to this model?
1: This is my first real job out of rabbinical okay. <laughs> school. Um, and, and I think what's important for me is that I, for five years of rabbinical school, was adamantly opposed to ever working in a synagogue. I wanted nothing to do with it. I, you know, The Jewish life that I looked for, the spiritual life that I look like, was in a synagogue, but was so... Um, I found that my own spiritual cravings were not being met by most of the synagogues that um, I had walked through and and I just, I felt like if I ever were to work in a synagogue, I didn't want to resent it for not being what I was looking for. And so I just said, you know what, I don't want to work in a synagogue. I want to be able to find my own that I can go to where I'm not the rabbi. Um, And also I've been, um, what drives me rabbinically is teaching
0: I was gonna ask you what, what brought you to uh, rabbinical school. Was um, there a te- spiritual teaching?
1: Teaching's a lot, yeah. has a lot to do with it. It's the kind of work that I like doing, that I, uh, that I love doing, and um, and, I, and I thought that, if, of course, I mean, rabbi means teacher, and that's a part of what mm-hmm. I would do in any synagogue, but I wanted it to be the entirety of what I was doing, or most of it, um, and felt like a non-profit of some sort would, would suit me a lot more, and then this job shows up which uh, one of the things that's really important here is that we do community building through education because we're not people people aren't paying membership they're not enrolling their kids in a religious school mm-hmm. so uh, most of our community members don't have children um, so it was just this like remarkable sweet spot of arts and culture and education uh, and and we have you know we call ourselves a synagogue so uh, here I went where up. did
0: you um, <laughs> where
1: did you grow up I grew up in Toronto um, in the suburbs of Toronto in, um, very, very Jewish neighborhood, um, Hebrew on the street signs, Hebrew on, on the storefronts. Um, Shabbat was quiet. Um, like you could see Judaism in the public sphere in the neighborhood where we grew up. And, um, for the first eight years of life, we weren't members of a synagogue anywhere. We, um, but we were, we were your family, your
0: family, you mean?
1: My family wasn't Yeah. Yeah. my, my parents and my sister and I, um, we we were what, what I would call like Israeli secular in that we had Shabbos dinner every week with my grandparents, with my Bubby and Zadie, who lived around the corner from us, mm-hmm. um, and my, my cousins and my aunt and uncle. Um, so we had Shabbos every week. We celebrated Pesach, Passover. Um, Chanukah and Rosh Hashanah were like definitely on, on, on the sphere. And like, we knew we were Jewish. I had a very strong sense of that, uh, but had no formal Jewish education. And then um, when I was eight, my mom... Um, for a number of reasons but largely i'm um, getting really caught up in kind of the the wave of jewish feminism and spirituality that was happening in the 90s um, felt a desire to return back to jewish life she had grown up kind of nominally conservative um and she went shul shopping with my dad and found a shul um, that blew us away with just an amazing rabbi Um, who drew us in and welcomed us. This was, um, this kind of, like they had been members of shuls when they were younger, but Mm -hmm. this kind of much smaller community, much more spiritually focused focused on music was new. And um, we really got drawn into that world. And because, um, at least for me, I was starting, uh, I had to play a little bit of catch up in terms of of education. So the rabbi met one-on-one with me for a number of weeks um, as we were starting off, and I was just so attached to her and really drawn to this, um, this whole new world opened up before my mm-hmm. eyes of Jewish life. And I, I was the kid who liked Hebrew school. I was really involved in youth group. It was all really important to me. I understood um, from my rabbi what both of my rabbis growing up were really good at was conveying a sense of this matters, this is important. This is not just something we do because we like it, but there's, there's something bigger going on. Mm-hmm. And I really absorbed that message, I think, you know, from, from the age of eight, from, from a young wow. age. At the time, though, well, I should say two things. One is that um, when you see, like, a young kid who's really into Judaism, everyone starts saying, like, oh, he should become a rabbi. Like, he yeah. should be a rabbi. Yeah. So I, start, I, like, I started hearing that from a young age, and um, I would say, like, both... Um, I both absorbed it and loved it, and also pushed back against it a lot. Um, and I, what I really saw myself doing in life was working in theater. And um, uh, I went to a performing arts high school, uh, and was absolutely certain, like this, this, this is life. I want, I want to, um, I want to be an actor. I want to be a designer. That's, that's really what I want to be doing. Went to a performing arts high school, um, was certain that I was going to study theater in university, and then I remember. The day before my audition for the, um, for the acting program at the university, which I actually wound up going to, I, I decided, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. I just felt like I want to try something else, and I wound up studying um, philosophy and religious studies. But then at the end of university, like this push and pull, like I don't know what I want to do. Everybody around me said, "Oh, they inform each other. They're so nice." You know, you know, rabbis have to have you know, good public speaking and it's somewhat theatrical. And I always felt like I felt like nobody got it. Just like yeah, but you have to decide what you want to do in life. You have to make that choice. And at the end of university of my undergrad, I said, "All right, I'm going to make a go at this. I have to decide." And for me at the time, it was purely utilitarian. I thought, if I go the Jewish route, it'll be much harder to go backwards into theater. But if I try theater, I can always do the rabbi Mm -hmm. thing later. And so I pulled the trigger and applied to and got accepted to um, the most prestigious theater school in Canada, um, the National Theater School of Canada in Montreal, and went there and thought for sure, this is it. Mm -hmm. I I went in intending to do the full three years, and this is what I'm going to do. And um, at the end of the first year, went home for the summer, and I thought, yeah, 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 you know, this. I'm going back in the fall, this is what I'm gonna do, and I, I remember this. I woke up one morning um, in the middle of the summer, and it was like crystal clear to me. It was just like, mm-hmm. a, like a beam of light shining, like this is not what I'm meant to do. I'm meant to do this Jewish work. Um, and I called the directors of the program and, and told them I'm gonna make this change. And they, they had known all along. Like, oh, they were waiting oh, for me to come and realize yeah, it for myself. And they said, we're so proud of you. We're really glad. We wish you the best of luck. And I'm, um, I, miss, I miss like some parts of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the irony that I always laugh about is that the theater training impacts my work every day. Sure Everybody else was right. You know, this idea of, like, fidelity to a text and what it means to study... Um, And figure out how do I internalize and bring myself Mm -hmm. to a text. Like a lot of what you were saying about how how do you take this thing that doesn't change but make it relevant to us who change all the time.
0: Yeah, but I was just thinking as you said this, because I didn't know this about you, that you made this comment that at a certain point you have to know who you are. Yeah. And you have to know what you have to do. So, you know, that sort of leads one to this notion of when you decide you're going to pivot, where is that coming from? And And are you actually changing?
1: Well, right. So, so there were like, um, there were um, like, there were some specific things that 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 gave me pause. Like, I felt like I was sacrificing too much. I wasn't able to observe Shabbat the way that I felt like I was compelled to. Um, there were like a few kind of cross-cultural moments of tension. Like, being a religious person in the theater is very, very difficult. Oh, yeah, and you're no, an no anomaly. On Russia, yeah. To be religious and involved in theater was such an anomaly for hyper-secular French Canadians. Yeah. like, who are you, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, there were these moments, but I felt like those were just things that I could overcome. Mm-hmm. And, of course, looking back now, I feel like it doesn't feel like I made this pivot. I mean, I made a pivot, but you're right. It feels yeah. more like... I was returning to the person who I always yeah. was, was. And I'm so grateful. Um, like, I don't feel like any of that was wasted time for me. It oh, feels yeah. so much a part of who I am. And then, of course, to wind up here at Sixth and I, this place that's, this arts and culture venue, yeah. totally reintegrates these things that for years, for me, felt like they were disparate parts Divergent, of my life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, it is. I've always thought it's, it's not, it's never about the destination. It's always about the journey but it is... Um,
1: yeah, although so, I'm glad that this is the this yeah, yeah. Is where I landed. And so. I'm glad, too. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so that first sermon that you gave that introduced you to the community where you uh-huh. talked about Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. So where did that sermon come from, and if could you tell us a little bit sure. about him?
1: Through? So um, I'll give you a little bit of, like, the um, the, the backstage look at being a rabbi. Okay. There, are, there are two kinds of rabbis. There is the rabbi who writes their sermon, um, their sermon... Day of, and sometimes those come out just unbelievably amazing. Is there
0: seriously surprising. a rabbi who writes oh, on Wednesday? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. for sure. Well, actually, I've probably heard some of those, maybe, and they were not amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe less so for the high holidays, but definitely yeah. there are some like down to the wire ones. And then there are rabbis who plan everything out in advance pass it along to an editing team. That's definitely how we try to work here um, because we have such an amazing communications department. Like, the sermons get passed around and people comment on them. Non-rabbis comment on them. It's great. Um, so, I, I, look, I gave four sermons over the course of the High Holidays. Um, three of them were very heavily researched, and like, months of research and draft writing. And this one, the story about Gene Roddenberry... Um, it's funny how this happened. There's a website called The Oatmeal, which does these um, kind of really lovely, poignant cartoons mm-hmm. um, kind of commenting on, you know, all aspects of life, from, like, what it means to live in the digital age, what it's like having a relationship with people. But they, they do what are, like, basically extended um, comic-style storytelling. <laughs> um, and I highly recommend checking oh, out. Oh, yeah, out. I will immediately and so they have this one. I had read this story about Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. I had, I had read this years ago, and I had saved it in my bookmarks. And I don't know how this happened, but I just happened to be scrolling through my internet bookmarks. I guess it was about three weeks before Rosh Hashanah. And found this story, and I clicked on it, um, and I reread it and I probably hadn't read it since becoming a rabbi or even while in rabbinical school. And it just screamed to me, this story is amazing, Star Trek is back on television, I, ha- like, I have to tell a story about this. So um, I read it and I reread it and, and figured, am I, am I just telling this story because it's a good story or do I think there's a message here? that has Jewish resonance that's relevant for the high holidays, and I, I really wanted to be sure about that, so I sat on it, I waited, I talked to my colleague Rabbi Shira here about it, and, and finally I, I said, yeah, I think there's a message here, and what I pulled out from the story were kind of the five messages that I thought were relevant and important at this time of year. Um, so I told the story, and then I, I shared this.
0: So can you just briefly tell us the story of Gene yeah. Roddenberry?
1: So the, when you read the comic on, on the oatmeal, the They're great. They tell it anonymously, and at the end, they give you this kicker of this person that this thing happened to was Gene Roddenberry. Oh, I love that. And if you're a Star Trek geek like I am and was growing up, it was just like, what? That's amazing. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: So the story goes that um, there was this flight from Calcutta to New York City in the 40s, and of course these planes had to, like, stop en route the whole way there. And the story goes that one of the engines fails... This is a Pan Am flight. a Pan Am flight in 1940-something. Yeah. Um, in the middle of the night, it's flying over Syria. And um, one of the engines cuts out. Um, and it, I think, becomes very clear to, to the flight crew that, that this is bad and that, and that the plane is going to go down. And they actually... The story goes that they watched the engine explode and the fuel lines catch fire and you would think that all of the flight staff would be busy occupying themselves with you know trying to land the plane trying to put out the fire but Gene Roddenberry who's one of the co-pilots on this flight gets up out of his seat opens the cockpit door because you could do that then goes back into the plane and sees this woman crying um, and he sits down next to her. So are the
0: passengers realizing that something is happening?
1: You have to imagine that there's yeah. just utter chaos when you yeah. watch an engine catch on fire and explode. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons I appreciated this so much is that um, I, in my previous job before rabbinical school, um, flew a lot. I was flying basically every week around North America and, and often to Israel and back. Um, and I love flying, I love traveling, but in the midst of doing this work, um, I developed uh, panic attacks from flying, uh, which was, there was such a cognitive dissonance for me between, yeah. I love flying, planes are cool. Yeah. My, my Zadie was a, a pilot in the Royal Canadian Air Force and I just, like, I have this history in the family and I thought, how can I be afraid of flying? Um, and I read, like, I know what it feels like to just have sheer and utter like, paralyzing panic uh. while sitting on an airplane. And Gene Roddenberry goes out, and he sits down next to this woman, and he knows, he's convinced we're all dead, but he tells her it's gonna be okay. And somehow the plane crashes, he survives. Um, There are a number of survivors. He's one of the only crew members to survive. The pilot is killed. And he evacuates the plane, which is engulfed in flames. He keeps going back in over and over again until he's absolutely certain I can't do this anymore. You know, at great risk to his life. He goes into the plane, pulls out bodies, and and the only thing that stops him from going back in is when the whole plane explodes. Um, And now you have these people... um, Injured. Injured in the cold Syrian desert in the middle of the night. They have no radio, they have no way of contacting anyone. The story is that um, while the plane was crashing, he had seen a glimmer of light somewhere in the desert. So the morning comes, and he forms two search parties, and he. They trek off into the middle of the desert mm. in search of these settlements, and he finds one. They radio the Syrian army. They send a plane. There's not enough room for anyone, so the, the plane that came radios Pan Am, and Pan Am sends a plane, and they pick everyone up, and he, um, he, he single-handedly saved these people's lives. Mm. And the, the, the kicker to this story... Which he story, injured himself... Yeah, he broke a rib, I think, in, when this happened. I, 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 I yeah. said to myself, there's no way this is true, right? This is just too good to be true. And so I did some research, and it's totally true. There's, it's in his official biography. And this was actually, um, this was his third plane crash that he was involved in um, over the course of his career as a pilot. And that's when he said, all right, no more. I'm, I'm going to change. So
0: that was the reason.
1: I don't know if it, it was, was like just, a
0: message. that me, yeah.
1: you, you have to imagine, um, you know, he's a pilot, He had, he's married, he has a wife. Um, like, was this the thing that did it for him? Where he said, all right, I'm not going to play games with my life anymore. But he wanted, clearly had wanted to be a writer um, um, in his life. and And I think this was the moment where he said, you know, the story I tell myself about this is that um, the kind of storytelling that he did as a, as a screenwriter was always about envisioning a, um, a more perfect future for humanity where um, where conflict, certainly international conflict, was we, we had evolved past that and mm-hmm. we were working for the betterment together of humanity and that um, the idea that the kind of person who would create that kind of television show mm-hmm. is the same as the kind of person who would sit down next to someone and tell them everything was going to be okay and then save all these lives is totally resonant. So maybe this was the one moment that said to him, how can I do more of that kind of work? Hmm. Um, I don't know, but um, given what I know about Star Trek, and I, I was very, I went down the rabbit hole with Star Trek when I was okay, younger. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I'll spare you from that now, but but just to say that, like, I don't think it's a stretch to say that You know that was his purpose in life, and that was what he was meant to do. And that he probably asked himself, "How can I do more of that kind of work? Is it as a pilot for Pan Am, um, or is it as a writer and an artist who can create, you know, bring this vision um, to to more people?" So I I think that's true. I believe that to be true. Mm.
0: So wow. So you know, one of the lessons that you saw from that was. Um, one of them that resonated with me there were two one was that everybody has the ability to change which in hearing your story makes me wonder you know people who think about that statement um, you know may tell themselves I don't know who I am and so I don't know how to change or what what I need to do but that also connects with the lesson that you said know where you need to be yeah and I really like that because what you were saying is that for some reason he knew that he didn't need to be in the cockpit, he needed to be with this person. Yeah. And that's, there's a lot of uh, like self-awareness there and, and, and having the presence or almost like the emotional competence to know where you need to be.
1: That, that to me, um, Yeah. So, so where I landed on that, well, how can I say this? Um, there, there's, um, there's a Jewish philosophy and life practice called Musar, which um, emerged um, over, over the last 200 years in Europe and is really directed towards cultivating, um, cultivating greater personal and interpersonal ethics through um, deep introspection, um religious devotion and um and really habit forming or habit breaking as is necessary and that requires a deep a deep self-awareness and um the practice of musar focuses on um, a number of things called midotes in hebrew or in english we might call them personality traits or or soul traits mm-hmm. humility, generosity, loving kindness, um openness to others. And, and the way you do that is both through um, finding sources for these concepts in, in sacred Jewish texts, but also through um, kind of mindfulness work. And it's, um, it's experiencing a resurgence right now, partly because of the, the role of mindfulness in, in, um, both in the general world and also in the, in the Jewish world. And one of the ideas is that you every human being has the ability to change. Uh, we all have free will in the Jewish minds, um, which is, uh, I, I would say there are, there are very few Jewish thinkers who would argue that we don't have free will. That's kind of a given. The question is then what do you do with that? Um, and so the, the ability to change and to, to make ourselves better both individually and communally um, finds a very strong rooting in Judaism, particularly around the high holidays um, for, for obvious reasons. Yeah. And this idea of Musar, what calls out to me is that um, you can't just make up your mind and say, I'm going to change. Or That's, I'm going
0: to be a writer. Right, I'm, not I'm, be a pilot, be I'm, I'm not going to be a Or I'm better. Or I'm not going to be an actor. I'm going to be a rapper.
1: Right. I mean, it's both practical, like um, in terms of um, shifting a career or, or deciding I want to move to a different city. Um, but it's also um, the, the spiritual piece to it is you can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be more humble. You have that ability, but making it happen isn't just a matter of your free will. You have to do the deep, deep work of looking within yourself. And one of the things that Musar offers is the ability to cultivate an awareness of um, what in Hebrew is called a nikudah b'chira, or in English, um, a, a decision-making point. How can I create a greater awareness of when my habits would normally push me in one direction, but I want to move in the other direction? And that's what Musar encourages us to do, is to to really develop a a sense of where are those moments where kind of my fallible human self would move me in the direction I don't want to go, and what can I do to help bring myself more in the direction of, of where I do want to go. And that to me is this idea of where do you need to be? right? Where I want to be someone else, I need to be somewhere else, but all of these forces around me push me in this other way, bad habits, bad influences around us, a world that is just constantly trying to suck our attention and send us pings through our phones and um, news that is only focused on just the, the negativity around us is just, for me, I see all the time, all day, and I work so hard against this, just sucking me in one direction. And how can I say, okay, I understand that those forces are there and sometimes I need to be aware of them, but how can I, um, how can I not lose self-control? And how can I still move in the direction to where Mm -hmm. I believe that I need to be?
0: In my own experience, I think what has allowed me to really think about this is this um, teaching myself how to create space between my emotions and my actions and even space between my thoughts and my emotions and how I'm gonna react to what's happening to me and what I'm thinking. And it's been a bit of a journey for me to get to that place. and it, it's not a transactional journey. It's mm-hmm. not you get to that place and then you change and you are who you want to be. No, my God,
1: it's every day. It is like th- this work. It, it's every moment of every day. Um, and it's a lot of failing and then a lot of picking up the pieces. And, um, you know, the idea of mindfulness is like a buzzword, I think. Mm-hmm. I, like, I worry about that because mm-hmm. I practice mindfulness and, and I've seen how influential and positive it's been in my life and how much healthier I feel. And then I worry that, like, oh, is it just kind of this millennial trend that we're going to let go? And one of the reasons I worry is because I find so much Jewish resonance in that. So sure, it comes, you know, it's an Eastern practice. It comes via Buddhism mm-hmm. to us. It definitely has, like, this pop, popular sh- um, mm-hmm. sheen and veneer. Um, but the ideas underneath are, are deeply Jewish, that we, we have free will. God wants us to act with goodness and kindness and mercy um, and compassion. To, our, to to ourselves and to other people, um, and that being a religious person is not only about do you follow a life according to Jewish law and practice mitzvot, practice the commandments, it's definitely about that, but absent goodness and ethics and treating every single human being that you encounter as um, being created in the divine image who's worthy of love and kindness and compassion, it can't only be about the form, it has to be about that also, and that's, to me, it's really easy to keep Shabbat and keep kosher. It is so much harder not to gossip and to treat people with kindness. And and, and that's the kind of like change in decision-making that um, I think people are in need of a lot um, of, gui- of guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in need of a lot of guidance. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. And I when I thought about the Roddenberry story, it's not just him knowing or somehow. I mean, it wasn't a conscious thing. Somehow him knowing where he needed to be. It it w- it, it changed his life. It didn't just change his life. It saved his life because if mm-hmm. he'd been in the cockpit, he would have been killed. Is
1: wow, I, I actually hadn't if, thought of that at all. If the other
0: p- if the pilot was killed. Wow, yeah.
1: Had he stayed in the so, cockpit, he might have died. Oh my god.
0: So Yeah. So not not only did it did it Give him the presence. I mean, he he somehow knew where he needed to be for both himself and for the passenger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such a hard question. And it, it's it's from you know, and I, especially as we get older, and you know, um, really older. I mean, I'm 60, so I don't consider myself really old. But you know, as as you know, we we have parents who are in their 80s, um, and we have friends whose parents are are older. And I don't know how I'm going to be when I'm 80. So I'm very reluctant to not, just not judge how people are when they're older. But for me, I want to be able to enjoy the present. I also want to be able to honor the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to stay in the present when you're You know, my daughter's getting married in three weeks. Um, I mention it because it's very hard for me not to think about every single day, how could she possibly be getting married? Mm -hmm. How could she be 30? And how could I be the mother of someone who is getting married? And I, through my own mindfulness work, which, uh, you know, everyone has their own way of practicing, I'm able to bring myself back Mm -hmm. to this moment and who I need to be, where do I need to be, so that I can feel good. And that is so hard to do. Um, mm-hmm. It isn't something that I've always been able to do, mm-hmm. and I'm really interested in how you as a rabbi, I mean, I'm sure you have people who schedule appointments with you mm-hmm. through Calendly who don't want to interview you for a podcast, yeah. but they have like real real concerns in their life they're looking at guidance for. Yeah.
1: I'm, I'm the kind of person uh, who likes fixing things, um, and one of the most profound lessons I learned in becoming a rabbi was you can't fix people. Um, it's just not possible. I, I can't, um, I can see the pain in other people sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, if, if I'm lucky, I don't know if luck is the right word, but, but if, if I can have empathy, if it's familiar to me, you know, that, that usually helps the relationship a therapeutic relationship um,
0: are people coming to you in many cases because something needs to change yeah and how, yeah even if they don't know if it if they don't know it mm-hmm.
1: yeah and
0: and does everybody have the ability
1: I think that there are people who um, due to um, illness or addiction or trauma the ability to change is it might seem like it's next to nothing um it could be severely hampered you could have um a monumental struggle ahead of you this you know this might be the naive optimist in me i i think everybody has that ability i i really do i acknowledge that it's it's, comforting. it's comforting but it's also um what a challenge it, it poses and and i know that um There are people who have privilege and support and um, that make that easier. And there are people who have unbelievable obstacles, familial, personal, you know, um, traumatic history, societal, that make kind of moving from A to B in your life unimaginably more difficult. And, you know, I I would put a giant asterisk on it and say, like, Mm -hmm. I am the benefit of great privilege in this. I have an immensely supportive family. Mm and a partner and colleagues who, who make this um, easier, tolerable, kind of, I, I have systems of support that other people don't. And as a rabbi, um, it's not my job to fix or to do the change for someone else, but to help them identify what are your systems of support. And for some people, that's a therapeutic relationship, either with a mental health professional or a spiritual, um, a spiritual leader. For some, it is text study. For some, it's a religious practice. Um, for some, it's finding um, sources of support within themselves that they never knew they had, or in family and friends around them. That, if I'm lucky, I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have learned the hard way that you can't just look at someone. Gene Rondery looked at someone yeah. and told them it was going to be okay. Um, that's actually probably bad rabbinic advice. Because
0: um, <laughs> he really didn't
1: know. Right, there are I people for whom it would be yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I worked in. in um, I spent a summer working in a cardiovascular inpatient unit in a hospital. As a
0: rabbinical student? As a
1: rabbinical student. This is something that many um, clergy in training do, is Mm -hmm. is do pastoral training in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And there are people who I would never say, it's going to be okay. I would acknowledge the uncertainty with them and say, wow, "Wow, yeah, it it might not be okay. Yeah. How does that make you feel, and, and how do you deal with it not being okay? even if in my head I kind of believe that cosmically you know, we, we all have some ways to make things, to get to a point where we can feel like it will be okay. I agree. And maybe, you know, maybe coming to grips with your own mortality sooner than you thought you would have to is okay for you in, mm-hmm. in that place. That That is, um, it's a really hard place to get to. It's tough. I think rabbis are by nature people who want to fix things and kind of, mm-hmm. Make the whole world better. And it's a very humbling um, process to go through to realize yeah, we can't fix everything. Mm. We, can, you know, we can't make the whole world better. But we have us, you know, rabbis are blessed with a, a circle that, that we can touch and that we can get closer to. Him. And we can make things a little bit better from them. And then hopefully it ripples out. The thing that often works best for me is kind of greeting that anxiety as if it were a person and saying, oh, hi, there's that feeling. How are you doing? Um,
0: So you're acknowledging it. Acknowledge it, yeah, not hide it. That
1: that is the worst, is to pretend that the pain doesn't exist and that you'll just get through it. Mm. I think is irresponsible. Um, so I acknowledge it. Um, I often portray it as a human being and I lean into it mm. and say like, oh, okay, where's this coming from? How are you doing? Like, t- I, I notice that I'm feeling this way. And I can say like, yeah, I've got five minutes to kind of sit here in this anxiety and, and acknowledge, uh, is it crippling me? Is it just kind of like a low level hum? Mm. Um, and other times I, I say, I don't have time for this now. I acknowledge that you're here we'll come back to you go, away, go away and we'll come back, back to you back later. later that takes like a lot of ability to um to do you know i remember when i first started having anxiety attacks in high school and i didn't know what they were mm. um, i remember the first one or at least the first time i noticed it i was riding on a bus and mm. i just had this like existential dread <laughs> and it felt like awful and i didn't know what it was and i didn't tell anyone because i I didn't know that there was something there to talk about. And yeah. It took a while before I mentioned it to my mother. And she said, oh, I think it, it might be this. Okay. Um, and, like, then all of a sudden I had the ability to name it and say, mm-hmm. oh, that's what this is. I know it'll pass. I can acknowledge its yeah. presence. I, it always passes. It doesn't make it easier while you're in mm-hmm. it. But, but the ability... Um, to acknowledge it rather than sweep it under the rug. And...
0: Getting good at doing that it takes practice.
1: It is. It's like it's it's like an athletic, the, the metaphor of like strengthening a muscle. I find to be so apt. I um, I taught a meditation, a morning meditation class at a synagogue in New York City mm-hmm. in Manhattan, and it's Manhattan, so there's construction everywhere, and it would interrupt us. But I actually use that as as the vehicle. You know, one one of the practices of mindfulness is to kind of note. Your thoughts and your distractions as they enter your mind while you're meditating, and and to name them and just to say, "Oh, hello," um, one of the the practices I use um, imagines them as a cloud and, and, and to just let the cloud pass. And then we would do that also with the distractions from outside. So like, don't pretend they're not there because they are there. Just acknowledge that they're there and say, "Like, I'll let I'll think about the building that's going up later. I don't want to think about that right now." So I think that um, at least for me, in terms of the anxiety that I've dealt with, my outlook on life. Um, having a meditation practice is kind of like going to the gym mm-hmm. and, and strengthening that ability to acknowledge a distraction or a disturbance mm-hmm. and say, I'll, I'll deal with this when it's appropriate. And I find that um, having practiced that, then I can do it with everything else in the rest of my life.
0: Do you teach meditation here?
1: We've been experimenting with kind of... Um, Spiritually themed yoga, so mm-hmm. we offered one during Sukkot. We'll have another one at Hanukkah that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm doing. Um, I offered some some mindfulness meditation on Yom Kippur in the middle of the yeah, day of fasting. So yeah. That's um,
0: I, I, actually a great time.
1: It's so it. perfect, especially for me. when you're really oh, super hungry and yeah. all this
0: dim sum and. You know, like, <laughs> Chinese you know I'm biased because I've seen how this works yeah, and yeah. I,
1: I'm, I, I feel like an evangelist for it but yeah. I, f- I feel like um, it's so good for people's mental health and for their spiritual health and we have a Jewish way of doing this that is uh, you know people often think like oh it's this Eastern thing that we're just kind of appropriating but no there's there's a, a thousands year old tradition of Jewish contemplative practice and we have language for it um, it is authentic to us and if it can help build more resilience in the world and a greater spiritual maturity and spiritual depth. I, I think I think everybody should be in therapy and everybody should be mm. doing meditation. Yeah. Everybody should have some sort of practice. Yeah, I mean it circles center. back
0: to the beginning of our conversation, which is that if you if you come to a place where you know who you want to be and mm-hmm. what you want to do, like what you said earlier when you were in high school, you have to have the ability um, to fail to try and then continue, you know, if if you're making a pivot, Mm -hmm. um, how to continue that journey. And um, maybe that's one way, maybe that's one tactic um, in the strategy to get you where you want to be. I don't Mm know.
1: There are, you know, I just want to say also that there are um, the critique of this is that, oh, but then you're too level-headed and you're too calm and the world is a mess and we need to be screaming right now. That's I, a good point. I, I appreciate that critique and I um, thought about it a lot. That was also, that was the topic of some of my Yom Kippur writing. Um, and and I actually look at other people who are fired up by um, what's going on in the world that they view as being very negative and are not responding with kind of a contemplative soulful approach or saying, no, there there are these terrible things and we have to respond to them right now. So the, I, I don't want to say it's a danger, but like I, I'm by nature a very kind of temperamental person in, in terms of um, being very centrist on, mm-hmm. on a lot of things and wanting to see the other side. And you know, I don't, you know, to take, to not get too political, but mm-hmm. to take um, an example, you know, if you're of the mindset that the proper response to immigration is not to take children away from their parents. Mm-hmm. If that is your mindset, which it is for me, um, probably the way to respond to that is not going and sitting in a room and meditating. You know, probably demand some action.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, meditation is not an end in itself. No, it's not That's the right. goal. Right. It's for me, it's it's to give you what you need. Right. To accomplish what it right. is you want to accomplish. I
1: can't be angry all the time. I need. I need. I don't want to live in a world where I'm angry all no. the time. Um, I want to live in a world where I deploy anger appropriately. I am angry about children being separated from their parents. The Judaism does not really um, value Stoicism or a deeply communal um, tradition, and, and that would be the difference of Jewish meditation and Jewish mindfulness, is it's not about just making yourself better for just you. It's about you and your interactions with yeah, your community. No, just, We're
0: all better off.
1: Right. That, yeah. that's the so,
0: end goal. So the end that's the end goal. If if it is about you, I am better off when the world is a better place. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. No, my I really pleasure. enjoyed speaking no, with you absolutely. and I'm really looking forward to um, hearing more from you no. and getting to know you. And welcome to Washington. Thank you. So You've been listening to a production of My Brain on Endorphins. Special thanks to Owen Kelly for mixing and engineering and for the awesome theme music. Thanks for listening.